Uh, now, if you're joining us, you should have a handout. It's entitled, A Course in New Testament Discipleship. We're on topic seven. If you're live streaming with us somewhere, you can print it out online. Uh, this is a critical, critical topic. One of the most important topics we'll cover in this whole series. It's one of the longest as well, I should say. Uh, but by the time we're done, I suspect this will be about 50 pages. And if you haven't been to the Discovery class, this is what we teach. This is what we're teaching in the Discovery class. It's designed for new believers. It's designed for uh, people who've never been discipled, never grounded in the basics. And it's also critical for people who want to know how to disciple someone else. All right, with that said, let's bow our heads in prayer and we'll begin our time. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We're grateful tonight that in freedom we can still open it without fear of persecution. And we ask that you would help us as we read it, as we study it, that we would be more than just those who hear the word, but those who want to obey and apply it. Thank you that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so build us up tonight by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just review where we've been. Uh, you have a brand new handout tonight. It's picking up on the page we left off. So you want to begin on this page, because I made a few tweaks since I had a little more time, and a few typos that I corrected. And I'm sure there's many more, but I'll find them. Uh, basically, this is what I taught for a few decades here at the church before others took over the discovery class. And I'm basically writing down everything that I say when I teach the discovery class. And it's being used by churches in different places, and it's being used in different countries. As you remember, we have six objectives. We want to consider the power of God's Word uh, as it relates to unbelievers, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, we also have as the objective of understanding how it relates to the Christian, to our spiritual growth. Uh, we're going to explore the relationship between being filled with the Spirit and filled with His Word. Uh, one command to the believer in terms of their relationship to the Spirit of God is to sow to the Spirit. We're going to talk about Scripture meditation, uh, some practical ways to have a quiet time or maybe to help your children or grandchildren or people that you've introduced to Christ how to have a quiet time. And then with each handout, there's two verses, but with this handout, there's the top 100 verse challenge of New Testament verses that many uh, desire to memorize. We began with the power of the Word of God. We saw it in respect to being justified, that it's like a seed. Uh, no one has ever been saved apart from the Word of God. Even before the Scripture was written and begun to be codified by Moses and the Torah, God still spoke in many portions and in many ways. And it was His Word that brought about conversion. It's the tool that the Spirit of God uses. And so Peter, as we studied, said that you were born again, not of seed that's perishable, but through imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God. James underscores that same truth as we discovered in James 1.18. And the exercise of his will, he gave us birth, how? By the Word of truth. And so just as there are two parents in physical birth, the Scripture underscores there's two parents in spiritual birth. You're saved through the Spirit of God using the Word of God to open your eyes to the truth and wonder of the gospel that you in turn might believe. And the degree to which you believe that is the degree which you will hide Scripture in your heart and use Scripture in the process of attempting to win people to Christ. Your testimony has no power in converting anyone. 
It may give you a platform to share Christ, but it's the Word of God that is what is highlighted in Scripture. So we saw Scripture as it relates to justification, when you are declared righteous. But then we began to also, where we left off on point B on the outline, God's Word in respect to those who are being sanctified. So justification is an act. It takes place in a moment's time. You are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Those 15 Greek words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God took Christ who had never sinned, and he treated him as if he had committed all of your sin and all of my sin. And in exchange, when you come by faith, he treats you as if you had lived his life. He credits you with the righteousness of God in Christ. And so justification is an act. It's a declaration. It's imputed to your account, whereas sanctification is a process, at least the present tense aspect of sanctification. So Jesus could pray as we studied in the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we saw then, um, if, if you may not have brought last week's handout, but I'm going to start on page 12 where we, I'm um, excuse me, on number 12 where we left off, just to give you a little context. Um, having just described that the Spirit used the word to justify us, Peter goes on to show how the Spirit of God uses the word to sanctify us. This is just review. You have it in your notes last week. He begins by reminding us that those redeemed from our futile way of life were at the expense of Christ's precious blood. And so now we are to keep our hearts clean so that the Spirit is free to lead us. And so Peter, after he spoke of our justification, moves into our sanctification, therefore putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so we discovered, number 13, that some Christians are stunning their spiritual growth by harboring unrepentant sin in their life. And so negatively, he warns us to put aside all malice, all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And when you see words like that, which was the last number we hit on, number 15, malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, slander, you want to know what those words mean if you don't already so that you can apply it accordingly. So that's where we're at right now. We're picking up a number 16 there in your handout. Notice 16. A formal equivalence translation has as its goal to take the best word in the receptor language with which to translate the word in the original. As you know, if you've taken the course in Bibliology in the Institute of Biblical Studies, there are various kinds of Bible translations. There's what we might call a paraphrase translation, like the Living Bible, the New Living Letters, and Good News for Modern Man. There's a host of them uh, where they basically paraphrase what is being said. That becomes a commentary on the Bible, and sometimes the paraphrastic translation doesn't always represent accurately what God said. It's a person's interpretation of what they think that verse is saying. And so typically a translation is done by a single person, living Bible translation, versus a version like the King James Version or the New American Standard Version or so on and so forth. That's done by a host of translators who are looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. And so within the realm of translation, uh, they try to be as literal as possible. 
though it should be noted, number, uh, number 17, well, let me, let me just stop there for a second and keep going on this. So think about different kinds of translations. There's a formal equivalent. That would be like the King James and the New American Standard. They're trying to do as much as they can, word for word, translating the text. Now, there are obviously idioms in different cultures and different languages that would mean something maybe foreign or radically different to us. For instance, God's anger is used with the idiom, God's nostrils are enlarged. Well, what does that mean? It might mean something to you, but that's literally what the Greek text says when it sometimes is being descriptive of God's anger. Or sometimes pregnancy is used with the Greek expression, she has it big in the belly, (laughs) okay? Well, I think you could see that, but we would say, well, she's pregnant. And so there is a certain freedom that even in a formal equivalent translation they take in trying to define idioms. Um, The old King James says, sufficient is the evil until the day thereof. Not sure what that means, but it meant something in the 17th century. And so we translate it a little bit differently, John 6.33 in the NASB. It's not because we're trying to make it say something that the King James didn't, but sometimes words change with time. So there's a formal equivalent. They try to do word for word. And then there's what we call a dynamic equivalent. And rather than just doing purely word for word, they do thought for thought. And there's a little more paraphrastic freedom. It's not a paraphrased translation, but they paraphrase a lot. Uh, the NIV would be a classic example of that. The NIV 84, and then of course they came out with the NIV 2011 in paper, which sadly departed from some of their original translation goals in maintaining integrity, and they took a lot of verses that Uh, were generically specific, and they made them plural. He's became they's, not to be offensive, but in many places, as I cover in the course in bibliology, if that's of interest to you, they change the actual meaning. I say all that to say number 16 here, a formal equivalent translation has as its goal to take the best word in the receptor language, in our case, English, with which to translate the original. So, if you're uncertain as to the meaning of words like malice or guile or hypocrisy or envy or slander, then use a dictionary or possibly even a Bible dictionary to learn its meaning. So, if they're trying to put it in the, a representative word in our language and you're not sure, well, what's the difference between malice and guile and you want to apply it, look it up in a dictionary. Though there are some words that maybe Webster's or Oxford or whatever won't represent the biblical nuance well, and that's where the purchase of a Bible dictionary would be a good tool in your library. There's a few books that you should have in your library um, for personal study, and we'll cover that before we're finished with this, with this handout. Uh, number 18, first we're told to get rid of all malice, which is an all-embracing word for evil in general, bent on hurting others through revenge. And so you will be stunned in your spiritual growth if you are revengeful and bent on hurting others. So if you want to grow, then all malice must go. Hold your finger here for a second. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 12 for just a moment. Romans chapter 12. 
This is a good illustration of what God calls us to do and to be. Um, Romans 12, and look at verse 17. You're in the application section of the book of Romans, doctrinal 1 through 8, national 9 through 11, focusing on Israel. 12 through 16, it's the applicational section. And so it begins with the word, therefore, in light of these great truths, therefore, 12.1. And in verse 17, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. There's different levels of payback. Some people return evil for good. That's satanic. And we're just seeing more, more of that in our culture. Just evil being done on people who didn't do anything, living decent lives, and that is really a satanic expression. That's what Satan does, but man can do it as well. And then, of course, there's evil for evil. That's not so much the satanic level as it is the human level. That's our natural tendency. And Peter's words, insult for insult. Someone insults you, you hammer it back. But God says, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, he'll say, give a blessing. And so the third level is you give good for evil. And that's what he's actually calling us to do. Never pay back evil to anyone. And then he quotes Proverbs. Look at verse 19. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's a prophecy. It's in the future. Someday God will repay. And it's not like he's got this personal vendetta. God's vengeance is not a personal vendetta. It's justice. God says he takes no pleasure in the destruction and in the death of the wicked. And so he says then in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is very similar to what Jesus said. When he said, if you just love those who love you, what credit is that? Even the pagans do that. But I say love even your enemies and do good. And so here he says that we are, in essence, to our enemy. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. The last phrase looks like vengeance, but it's not. He bur yeah, get him with burning coals on his head. It was a common expression in the first century of, you know, you, you, you survived with a fire. You had a cook stove, and if your fire went out, you'd get the lighter fluid, and no, there was no such thing. You know, it was work. And so you would often go to a neighbor and bar hot coals, and you'd carry it on your head, and there was a certain amount of discomfort even though it was padded. And his point is, is that when you return good for evil, you create a certain discomfort in the heart of the person who maybe has offended you, and God will use that to bring about repentance. Now back here to our handout. That was just a little side thing I didn't plan to get on, but look at uh, number 20. Peter also mentions guile, which could also be translated in some of our English Bibles, deceit, because it comes from a verb that means literally to catch with bait. And so guile is a form of trickery used in order to achieve one's purposes. And God says, put that away. We're not in to get people to serve us. We are to be serving people. In addition, Peter mentions here hypocrisy, number 21, used of someone who played a part. And so a hypocrite literally means a play actor. Hypocrisis 
comes from a word hypocrites, which was used of a man who put a mask on, a smiley mask, a frowny mask, and they were play actors. And so we're hiding behind a mask. We're not hiding behind reality. And he says to put that away. And typically, if we're nursing malice or guile, we'll try to hide it, producing hypocrisy. 22, then we're told to put away envy, which refers to resenting the hidden strengths or advantages that another person may have. Why do people envy other folks? Because they're not really comfortable in the way God created them and made them. And they're oftentimes taking the world's perspective of what is great and what is good, and they're carrying it into the body of Christ. So the important person is the person up front. I am no more important than the people up there in the highest deck that you can't even see, and I can't see from here, who are running all the machines so that this can be recorded and broadcasted and so forth. There are no unimportant people in the body of Christ. Or, you know, that woman, wow, look at the way she looks. I mean, a Taylor Swift, she's been all over the news. Can't get rid of her right now. Like the way God created her is more significant than the way he created you. That's the world would say that, but God said he wove you together in your mother's womb. And so envy is based on a wrong perspective. And it lusts after strengths or advantages someone else might have. Maybe someone's giftedness. Whether it's a uh, gift given at birth, maybe they're athletic or mechanically inclined, or a spiritual gift given at conversion. There's no unimportant spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 12. The body cannot function physically without every part, neither can it function spiritually. We may be envious, 23, over what a person does or what a person has or over what a person is able to accomplish, be it a spiritual gift or some material possession. It must be put away or we will never grow up. Finally, he adds all slander, which is typically the verbal fruit of an envious heart. When used as a verb, it literally means to run down. Same word here. Noun form, in a verb form, it means to run down. And that's what people do if they're envious. God wants us to know that these sins will stunt our spiritual growth, rob us of our appetite, and keep the Word of God from changing our life. John Bunyan, most of you know, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most published books since the printing press, apart from the Bible. It's an allegory. Um, But he wrote in the cover of one of his Bibles, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. I have that written in the front of this Bible, every Bible I've ever owned. Now, people accredit it to other people, but that's the oldest accreditation we have, John Bunyan. And so the old saying is true that a Bible that is not falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. So essential to the process of sanctification or becoming more like Christ is our relationship to the Bible. And so Peter reminds us that we must put away what is evil, but that we should also long for that which is pure. So it's not enough just to put away, but if you don't put away all the Bible studies, sermons, and everything else you may do, really doesn't add up to a hill of beans. 
So he says here in the next verse, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Now, in exhorting us to long for the pure milk of the world, word, Peter is not instructing us to be childish, but rather to be childlike, so that we might grow up in Christ by the means this, by the means the Holy Spirit employs. And so he wants us to use the means that God the Holy Spirit has for spiritual growth. And we should have an appetite for the word like a hungry newborn baby. And if we don't, you need to stop and ask why. I mean, one of the first things a newborn wants to do is nurse, right? And if we don't have a hunger like that, there's something wrong in the heart that is squelching that hunger. So, understand, we must feed on the Bible every day like a newborn baby drinks milk. James gives the same instruction as Peter. And by the way, let me just say that uh, sometimes the word milk, I think I skipped over 31, is used to describe the simpler truths of the Bible. For instance, in the book of Hebrews. But don't cloud the way the writer of the Hebrews is using it with the way Peter is using it. In Hebrews 5, he says in verse 11, I've just flipped over there, concerning him we have much to say, concerning him being Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Once these people heard clearly, but they had become dull of hearing. Sometimes we talk about backsliding. A Christian can regress in his spiritual life. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So there he's using the word milk of simple truths versus more difficult truths. Unlike Peter, who's using milk in terms of the hunger that we should have like a little newborn baby. Solid food, he said, is for the mature, who because of practice, there's an obedience issue there. Their senses have been trained. The word trained is gymnasto. We get our word gymnasium from it. Their senses have been gymnasticized, you could say, to discern good and evil. And a lot of folks today lack good and evil. I mean, lack discernment over good and evil. They're chewing and eating things that they should never put in their mouth or their heart, or their brain, or however you want to describe it, but they don't have discernment for the simple reason they're not applying what they know to be true, and they lack discernment. So go back here to the handout. James, um, so the writer of the Hebrews is using it differently, but here it's used as an analogy between a baby's hunger for milk and our hunger for God's truth. We must feed on the Bible every day like a newborn baby drinks milk. James gives the same instruction as Peter by first stating that the Spirit used the word of truth, we studied this last week in 118 of James, to bring about our second birth so that now we can consume the word to grow in the sanctification process. That may seem basic, but it's often overlooked. I see parents sometimes who are trying to get their kids to grow spiritually, and they haven't been born spiritually. And it just won't work. And so sometimes we have to step back and say, have they really had the new birth? However, before the word can have its full blessing, like Peter, James teaches us that we must now keep our hearts clean 
to grow. And so James 1.21, there the apostle James pictures the human heart like a garden and that he reminds us that before the word of God can really be heard, hindering sins must first be dealt with. So it's the same pattern as 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. You're born again by the word of truth. Now that you're born again, put away these evil things. Hunger for the word like a baby hungers for milk. James says God brought a second birth, 118, by the word of God. Now that you have this second birth, therefore, three verses later, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So before we can receive the word implanted, we must remove all sin. There must be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. It's just essential. So when we are commanded to put aside all filthiness, the Greek noun for filthiness comes from the medical realm referring to wax in the air. And when used metaphorically, it refers to moral filth and impurity. Our culture is covered over in that. And if you do not watch over your heart with all diligence, you'll feed on moral filth. It's everywhere. It used to be hard to get when I was a kid. Kids are carrying it in their hands today. The problem with 10-year-old boys and pornography in this nation is huge. Never could have happened when I was a boy. There was one street in Worcester, Mass., where they had the fine arts theater, and it's where they sold porn, and it was hard to get. But everything began to change in the late 70s and 80s to where we're at today. But you have to make decisions. And people say today, well, you know, it was a good movie. It had just a few sex scenes in it, but, you know, overall it was good. Well, not according to James. He says, all that remains of wickedness, put aside all filthiness. James is simply saying, number 39, that sin in our lives, which we refuse to put off, acts as wax in our spiritual ears, preventing the word of truth from reaching our hearts because our spiritual hearing is impaired. Very similar to the analogy, right? We just read from Hebrews 5. You've become dull of hearing. Same, same picture. Depending on your translation, it is either rendered moral filth or every evil thing or everything impure because the word filthiness refers to obvious sin in one's life. So he's not saying to dig for a sin that you don't know about. To him who knows to do right, James will say, and does not do it. To him it's sin. All right, number 41. Then, to filthiness, he then adds all that remains of wickedness. The point here is that we must confess and repent and eliminate every vestige of sin in our lives that corrupts our hearing, and in the process reduces our hunger for God's Word. All that remains of wickedness, even hidden sins, and by hidden sins, I don't mean hidden to us, you know, or again, you know, you're trying to drudge up something you're not sure that's there, hidden to other people because God knows the heart. The point here is that we must confess and repent and eliminate every vestige of sin in our lives that corrupts our hearing and in the process reduces our hunger for God's word. Whenever you confess and forsake sin, 
you effectively, to use the same metaphor, clean out your ears so that you can hear the Word of God. That's why two people can hear the same sermon and one's life is changed by and the other it just goes over his head. Just dull. They come in dull and they leave dull. There are no little sins in the believer's walk, which is why God tells us through his apostle to put away all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Listening to sermons, attending Bible studies, or studying the Bible on your own will accomplish little if our spiritual lives are dirty. Now, don't miss the tense of the verb here. Let me read verse 21 again. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When you study the Bible or a pastor preaches, not his own thoughts, but Scripture, then he has implanted the word in your heart. And you must decide in humility to receive or welcome that word. Look, if you're having an argument with the preacher who's ever opening the scripture in your head and you're just arguing with him all the time, yet the text is clear. Your argument is not with him, it's with the Lord. And so we are to welcome the word of God when we hear it. The end result is that the word, received word, will save your souls in the sense that it will change your character. Because in this context, James is not referring to our justification, but to our sanctification. Again, the same pattern we just saw in 1 Peter. Saved by imperishable seed, put away these things, long for the milk like a baby. The word of God brings forth life, put away these sins. Now welcome the word which is able to save you. He's talking about growth. Remember, James is addressing Christians who have already been saved. So do not forget that the word salvation can have varied meanings. So context is everything. Sometimes salvation doesn't even mean, quote unquote, what we would think of as salvation. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it just means they were saved or delivered from the enemy. But we're not talking about, say, spiritual salvation. So context is everything. I have been forever saved, past tense, in the past from the penalty of sin when I received Christ as my Savior. We call that justification. Someday I will be saved when I go to heaven. That's in the future, right? Both from the possibility and from the presence of sin. God calls that glorification. And what a great day that will be. You'll never sin again. Someday, uh, but right now, between those two points, I am being saved from the power of sin. But that is largely dependent on my allowing the word implanted to work in my life. The Bible calls that sanctification. That is precisely what this phrase, which is able to save your souls, is referring to. Not justification, not glorification, but sanctification. Now, we could get a little more technical here that there are three tenses to sanctified. I have been, you are sanctified, past tense, set apart for a particular purpose. You will be sanctified, future tense, body, soul, and spirit. But the present tense of sanctification speaks of that ongoing process where God is forming Christ's life into us. The Apostle James 54 is inspired to link this word save with a present participle indicating the current ongoing aspect of our salvation. And so maybe if you're reading a case language like 
Victor is back there. He reads Ukrainian. He picks up that nuance. Maybe we don't pick it up in English, but that's the nuance in the Greek New Testament, that it's a present, ongoing participle. But you could figure that out just by the context. Essential to the growth process is to understand that the word that the Spirit uses to redeem us is the same word he uses to grow us. That's the point. And in the same way we initially welcome the word in faith resulting in justification, we are to continue to welcome the word, which of course presupposes a clean heart resulting in our sanctification. So underscoring the Spirit's use of the Bible to change us is clear when Paul writes this. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit in faith in the truth. There in one verse, both concepts are brought together. On the one hand, you're born again. On the other hand, by the Spirit, John 3, 3, John 3, 5, John 3, 8. On the other hand, you're born by the Word of God. So knowing that we are sanctified or made more like Christ, both by the Spirit and the truth, we, must, we still must respond in faith. We still must respond in faith. While God can cleanse the believer of any sin, we must confess our sins, which involves a change of attitude and action. And so I think most of you know, it's one of the top 100 New Testament verses, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a salvation verse. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do contextually with sanctification. It has nothing to do with our relationship with God. It has everything to do with our fellowship with God. Your relationship with God is eternal. It can never be changed. It's unbroken. But your intimacy... Your communion, not your union, but your communion with the Lord is an ongoing thing. And so it is in that context that he tells us to confess. Homo legao, homo, that prefix, homo sapien, homosexual, it means the same. Legao to say. So when we confess, we say the same thing that God says about the sin. We own it. And sometimes, if we don't own it, there's not really been a change of heart and we don't move forward. We have to own it, we we can't blame it. And that's our human nature. Well, you know, they're 99% wrong. Well, if they are, take your 1%, right? That's what we have to do. We have to take our sin and we have to acknowledge it for what it is. And if we're truly acknowledging it as sin, then there's a turning away from it. Otherwise, there's been no confession. And while number 60, the Spirit can use the truth of the Bible to grow us, God does not automatically feed us His Word. We must choose to feed on the truth of Scripture, as we just saw in those two texts. We have to choose to feed. The Bible is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17. For as the writer to the Hebrews informs us, it not only brings salvation when believed, but it brings rest because it's alive and can judge the heart. And so the writer of the Hebrews, especially in the third and fourth chapter, speaks of the believer's rest. 
Why didn't they enter into his rest? Because they didn't mix faith with the word of God. They didn't respond to what God said. And so he concludes that whole great discourse by saying they should have. Why? Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So if you think about it, the finest surgeon in the world cannot correct a bad attitude, a closed mind, a rebellious spirit, or a lustful heart. But the Bible can because it serves as our judge and it changes our thinking. And so we're to have our minds renewed, right? Through the renewing of your mind. As a man thinks in his heart, that's what he becomes like. There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the Bible functions like an x-ray. It goes beyond the surface right to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. It gets down to the level of motive. And so Paul will write, all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, and it's generic there, the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul does not say that all the authors of Scripture are inspired by God, even though that is true, but he writes all Scripture is inspired, and there's a difference. If Paul wrote a letter to his cousin, was it the Word of God? No. You know, there are, there are certain writings that God put his imprimatur upon as being the Word of God. So not only were the men who wrote Scripture inspired by God, but he says all Scripture, meaning the very words they wrote are inspired. And that's why a um, verbal plenary uh, view of inspiration is critical. Jesus believed in verbal plenary inspiration, right down to the smallest letter in Hebrew, the yod that looks like an apostrophe, and even a mark. He uses two words there in the Sermon on the Mount. A resh kind of looks like a backward R. A daleth looks like this. There's just a little point on it. It would be like the letter O printed in the letter Q. It's a little slice mark. Jesus said down to the smallest mark, down to the smallest letter. That's how much Scripture is inspired. And so the skeptic is quick to protest that his well, let me, let me go back. I think I skipped 65. Not only were the men who wrote it, but the very words, then 66. The skeptic is quick to protest that this claim is a circular argument and therefore is not a valid argument because obviously anyone can write a book claiming that it is the word of God when it is not so. However, if the Bible did not claim to be the inspired word of God and we as Christians tried to prove it through some other means, then we would have a serious problem on our hands. Right? So the fact that it claims to be the Word of God in one way or another several thousand times, and we give a little booklet to people who come to, I wrote this for Ken Ham in an apologetic series in Answers in Genesis, how to prove the Bible is true. We give that to every person who comes to meet the pastor. And we go through five infallible proofs. Now, they already know it's the Word of God just like they already know God exists. How do they know it's the word? It's alive, it's living, it's active, it pricks their heart. But to show them 
that it's not a foolish belief, a blind belief. You know, it's helpful to have an apologetic. I don't make any money on that, by the way. Uh, however, if the Bible did not claim to be inspired and we tried to prove it, we'd have a serious problem. However, the Bible does claim to be the Word of God, and that is an important piece of evidence that cannot easily be dismissed. The testimony of those who claim it is God's Word, like Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, right, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and scores of others like Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, and the apostles cannot be brushed aside without discrediting their integrity. While not everyone is ready to embrace Jesus as God the Son, very few would write him off as an evil man or an unreliable person. I meet few people who would say that. They wouldn't say, well, Jesus is downright evil. They would say he was a good man, a great teacher. Look up here, don't be distracted. But he's not evil. 71, everything we know about the moral quality of the apostles demonstrate that they were not dishonest men as they condemned lying, stressed honesty, and encouraged Christians to be respectful and law-abiding citizens. There's a few texts where that's unfolded. If God was not behind the Bible, then you would be left to conclude that either good men or bad men wrote it without God's help. If only good men wrote the Bible without God's help, then they were not really good because they would be liars by saying over and over and over again, thus says the Lord, if God was not really inspiring them. You would have to say they were evil men because the end result of what they wrote has resulted in millions dying for the claims that they made. They would be evil beyond evil. On the other hand, if the Bible is the product of bad men, it seems highly unlikely that they would write a book that forbids sin, commends good, while condemning their own lying lifestyles to an eternity in hell. It just wouldn't make sense. Again, if all we could say is the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is, we would be accused of circular reasoning. And I would say to any critic who claims anyone could write a book and say that it is inspired by God to please go ahead and do so and let's see how it compares to the Bible in any way that they want to compare it. (laughs) The truth is there has never been any book written by the most brilliant of critics giving us, quote unquote, another Bible that has been inspired with more life-changing power and producing so much good than the Bible. You think the Quran has produced good? You think people reading the Quran has, have been moved to uh, feed the hungry and build hospitals and care for the poor? Now, some of them have tried to mimic Christian principles, but that's not in the Quran. If you don't follow their way, if they're given the chance, they'll slice your throat or cut your head off. Later on in this course, we will examine the clear evidence that God has left for us to examine, documenting that this is the only book he wrote. Again, in the discovery class, basic discipleship, if you're downloading it through search the scriptures, the apologetic section covers this 
in great detail. I'm just giving us a snippet of it. So since all of the Bible is inspired, and the word is a compound word in Greek, it literally means God breathed. And so some translations say all scripture is theos neustos, God breathed, it's the breath of God. That makes it profitable. The Bible is profitable for teaching, which is the same word you could render as doctrine. People say, well, doctrine, you know, that's bad. No, doctrine is good. Doctrine reflects what God is like. It separates good from evil, truth from error. It tells us what is true about God, man, and the world we live in, and the world to come, all the while teaching us the path that God would have us to walk on. The Bible is also profitable for reproof. The Young literal translation, Robert Young wrote a a translation of the Bible, and he did Young's Concordance, like Strong's Concordance. These guys did this in the 1800s, and they gathered every single word. Every time in the Bible the word love appears, every time the word begin appears, every time the word hate appears, and they went through virtually every word in the Bible with the exception of about 25, and they cataloged it. Can you imagine without computers or anything else, these paper concordances? He, uh, he renders it, he was a great scholar, conviction, because when the Bible exposes our doctrine or our conduct is being wrong, it shows us where we've gotten off the path. So it's profitable for reproof. It shows us where we've gotten off the path that God has for us. The Bible is also profitable for correction, or you could literally put it in the Young's literal translation, setting a right by showing us when we have gone astray and precisely what action we need to take to get back on the path. So it not only shows us how we got off, but how to get on, on the path of God's will for our lives. The Bible is profitable for instruction in righteousness, showing us how to stay on the path, to stay on the path of God's plan in order that we might adequately be equipped. And you see that interchange right between Ephesians 2 8, 9, and 10, one of the 100 most passages in the New Testament you should memorize, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It, salvation, this whole by grace through faith process. Now, in one paraphrase translation, it says faith. It doesn't say that in the Greek New Testament. That was a person's interpretation. One word is masculine, the other is neuter, because he's underscoring that this whole by grace through faith process is God's gift not of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Poema, we get our word poetry. Think about your, your life as God's poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So very simply, the fact that the Bible in one word is profitable tells us that we can understand the Bible because if the Bible could not be understood, there is nothing profitable about it. You say, what's your point? This is a very important point, and I don't want you to miss it. Number 86, the Bible can be understood by the common man, is sometimes known as the doctrine of clarity or the purposecuity of Scripture. Have you ever heard that term? The purposecuity of Scripture. That's an important term. Uh, the doctrine of purposecuity of Scripture just means clarity. It's a 50-cent word, but you'll read it all the time in commentaries and as you study the Bible, and it's one of the great catchwords of the Protestant Reformation. 
The perspicuity of Scripture is one of the basic tenets of Protestant evangelicalism concerning the Bible, along with such doctrines as, as the inspiration, inerrancy, and the sufficiency of the Bible. In short, the doctrine of clarity or perspicuity means that the central message of the Bible is clear and understandable and should be translated into various languages because it can be understood in a normal literal sense. So technically, we don't believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible as they often accuse us of. We believe in the plain interpretation of Scripture. That is the historical, cultural, grammatical interpretation. We recognize figures of speech. When Jesus said, I am the door, we don't believe he's a literal door. And so that's typically called the plain interpretation. Sometimes we call it the literal interpretation, but then the liberals attack us with that club. But it can be understood. This is important because the Protestant reformers, 89, in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church, taught that the central message of the Bible is clear so that a regenerate person, with God's help, can read and understand its truth. That was radical in the day of the Reformation. Because as we'll see, and we're going to have to close here in a moment because I'm going to have our time of prayer, that was the opposite of what the Roman church taught then and the Roman church still teaches today. Roman Catholics have falsely taught that the Bible is obscure and difficult to understand, and that the only official teaching arm of their church, known as the magisterium, can correctly interpret the Bible. This is right out of the Catholic Catechism. Just that, and it has the Catholic imprimatur on it, the most recent catechism, just as it has the, the church, just as it, the church has the exclusive ability to distinguish which writings constitute the Bible, the church alone possesses the means to understand and interpret Scripture infallibility. So the Roman Catholic Church would tell you they gave you the Bible. They didn't give you the Bible. Man did not determine what went in the canon of Scripture. We cover this in Bibliology in the section on canonicity. All man did was recognize what God had inspired. Man didn't determine. Now, that's inspired. No, he recognized what was inspired. So the Catholic Church, A, didn't give us the Bible. For that matter, neither can they exclusively interpret the Bible. So when I was a child, no one read the Bible in the Catholic Church. A problem was created because some paraphrased translations like the Good News for Modern Man, the Living Bible came out and Catholics actually began to read it, and, but they were cautioned. You can't interpret it correctly apart from the church. So we didn't really study the Bible growing up, and Catholics who are committed to the Catholic faith, and there's a lot under the banner of Catholicism that's obviously not even Catholic, what they study is Catholic doctrine because what's important is what the church ultimately says it means. Well, is that how Scripture is posited? 91, this, of course, contradicts God's statement that all Scripture is profitable. For such a statement presupposes that the Bible can be understood. It's interesting to note 
that when Jesus confronts false teachers in his day for misunderstanding the Bible, he places the blame for their error not on the scriptures themselves, but on those who misinterpreted them. Have you not read? Didn't you read in the law? Don't you read the scriptures? He'll make statements like that, and I gave you a sampling over and over and over again. There's a presupposition that even an unregenerate mind, there's certain truths that he can understand. If he couldn't, he'd never come to faith. But the Spirit works even behind the Word of God on the unregenerate man. But of course, Paul reminds us too that a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. They're moronic to him literally. He can't appraise, understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But if someone has been born from above, he has the Spirit who is our teacher and our helper. And so on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He rebukes two disciples. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. They should have gotten it. Jesus believed in the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. For he always applies, he always assumed that the Scriptures could be rightly learned and applied. It is also interesting to observe that most of the New Testament letters are written not to church leaders, but to entire congregations. And so, for example, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Who's the church? Born-again believers. They're in the city of Corinth. Over and over again, they write to local churches. There's four books that I highlighted. The exhortations to read Scripture in public clearly show that ordinary believers in ordinary churches could understand. And so Paul will say, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Why bother if you can't understand it? All right, we're going to have to, well, can you suck it up and go with me five more minutes? All right, all right. 97, the Apostle Paul also makes statements indicating that even children carrying the Bible in the home and when present in the church are able in some capacity to understand the Scriptures. So he's addressing the Ephesians church and he says, children, obey your parents, which is right. This is the first commandment with a promise that it might be well with you that you might live long on the earth. There's an assumption, by the way, that if children can understand those words, they should be in the worship service. Now, there was a time when there were no nurseries in America. And in this day, of course, where so many children are out of control, it would be difficult to have a service <laughs> in some respects. Uh, by the way, kids are until the parents begin to get a hold of them and begin to train their children and shape them accordingly. But listen... When they're five years of age, we expect them to be in the service. And if you're watching me somewhere and you're putting your children in some Sunday school and they're not worshiping with you by the time they're five, you're doing them a great disservice. And the church that may be offering you that is doing a great disservice. So I was in a church not long ago in Greenville and there came a point in the service and all the kids were gone, at least through the sixth grade. That wasn't a blessing. That was a disservice to those children. These kids who grew up in this church and they started attending, at least by the time they're five. Wow. The kinds of questions they ask, the things they understand, some of them are sharper than 60 and 70-year-old people I've met. 
Of course, Catholicism cannot provide infallible evidence for their so-called infallible magisterium. And to agree with this doctrine, a person must trust in his own fallible reasoning to fully embrace it. It's somewhat of an oxymoron, isn't it? The doctrine of perspicuity or clarity does not mean that every passage is equally clear as to its precise meaning. And so the apostle Peter said that scripture contains some things that are hard to understand. And there, of course, he's referring, Paul's got some things that are hard to understand. An apostle said that. The perspicuity of God's infallible word does not eliminate the need for interpretation and exposition of the Bible by pastor teachers, Ephesians 4.11, nor that it is all immediately understood over time. You know, why, why meditate on the word day and night if you instantly have it? You have to turn it over and over in your mind, and there's a growth process. However, if God gave us minds with which to worship, and he did, and if he gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, which he did, John 16, 13, then wisdom would dictate that the believer can know the Bible. This does not mean the Bible is always easy to understand, which is one of the reasons, again, God raises up teachers for the saints. And he gave some as apostles, and there it's not the uh, office, but the gift, and some as prophets, and some as pastor some as evangelists and some as pastors slash teachers. It's, it's a different connective word referring to a singular gift, the pastor-teacher gift. And that's why pastors are supposed to open the word and feed the flock. But you still have to internalize it. So it only stands to reason that if God gave his word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to teach us, right? First John 2, we have an anointing. John says, you don't need a teacher, Wait a minute, John, you're teaching us that we don't need a teacher. His point is, if you read those verses, is that we have the ultimate teacher, and that's the Holy Spirit, that when you hear someone preaching truth, it rings true in your heart. It reverberates, it's correct. And so it only stands to reason that if God gave his word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to teach us, then God would certainly not restrict the most important book to only a select few people. But that's what the Roman church teaches. And that's what most cults are built on. You're ignorant. You're moronic. You can't get this. I am the divine interpreter. That's insulting. I find that incredibly insulting. And so the perspicuity of Scripture was a major fundamental doctrine of the Reformation. And that's what led, by the way, to Bible translation. Why did we need Bible translation? Because we basically had one translation, Latin, for a thousand years. And so these Latin sayings and a multiplicity of sayings, the people don't need to read it in their vernacular because they can't understand it. They're ignorant. What a control factor. Certainly, the Bible is deep enough for those with the brightest minds and yet simple and clear enough for the uneducated person to live by. And so the Bible is adequate. It's complete, meaning that the Bible is capable, as Annette renders it, in leading me to everything I need. If a Christian, if as a Christian I will only hear and learn the Bible and then apply it as a doer of the word, then I will be complete. It's the word teleos. It means 
grown up, maturing, as a believer, equipped for every good work that God has planned for me. And that's really what we want, right? We want to walk in that plan that God prepared beforehand for us to have. I don't want to get to heaven and God says, this is really what I had for you. But you didn't achieve it because there were basic truths you didn't apply. And I couldn't unfold it for you. This reminds us that as we learn God's word, we are not simply appreciating its truth, but we are being equipped as saints in order to accomplish the work of the ministry. And that's Paul's point, right? When he describes those various gifts in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. When we come to the Bible, let God speak to us. It changes us. It transforms us. And this process is known as sanctification. All right, I'm just going to close this off in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful that your word given by the Spirit who moved men along as they wrote the very words and letters that you would have them to write, how thankful we are for what you've accomplished and that you even sent him to live in us, the one who inspired it to live in us, to be our helper, our teacher, that we might apply it. We know, Holy Spirit of God, that you constantly deal with us. You tweak our consciences when they're out of sync. You've called us to be holy, for he is holy. And we know that your ministry of filling us, of equipping us, of ministering through us, of reaching the lost, of taking the scripture and helping us to see it and understand it. Your ministry of illumination is all hindered when we fill the world with our hearts and minds. And so help us to take these commands to put away all wickedness and all that remains of filth and to walk in holiness that we might indeed Find the good works and the plan that you've prepared beforehand. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.